Ho, 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 ho. No, I'm only joking. It's me, David. And it's me, Chris. And it's your 10th of December RSP podcast. Might feel a little bit early for Santa noises, but we're in Edinburgh today. And Edinburgh is Christmas central from about the middle of November, I think. So uh, Yeah, maybe earlier. I'm Christmas out already. Let's get this out of the way so that we can be enthusiastic about Christmas for next week when we announce the Christmas special. But enough of that. Exactly. We always yeah. need a healthy dose of occultism. To, 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 to sort of purge the Christmas. But, but we can be modern and address kind of gender issues in occultism. And you know who'd be good to do that? Sammy Bishop speaking to Manon Hedenborg white Sammy and Manon, take it away. Hello, I'm Sammy Bishop. I'm here at the ESR 2018 conference in Bern. It's a very sunny day today, and I am joined by Manon Hedenborg white from Soderturn University, a postdoctoral researcher. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here. Great. Have you enjoyed the conference so far? I have very much. It's been a little bit of a short visit for me, but I've seen some really interesting papers on a lot of different topics none of which have really been in my main area of research. So that's always that's always a fun thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So your main area of research is in occultism and yes. sex magic as well. Mm -hmm. So for the listeners who aren't um, too familiar with the field, could you give us a brief outline of uh, what is occultism and mm -hmm. sex magic? Yeah, um, definitely. So occultism, usually the way I explain this is as a particular branch of the broader field that we usually call Western esotericism. So Western esotericism is a very broad umbrella term that is usually used to encompass a number of different religious and philosophical phenomena with earliest roots in late antiquity and which have blossomed in Europe primarily during the Renaissance and which are still in existence today and which encompass things such as hermeticism, the tarot, astrology, ceremonial magic, Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry or specific branches of Freemasonry and so on. So occultism generally is characterized as specific forms of modern Western esotericism. For instance, one of the leading experts within this field, Walter Hanegraaff, characterizes occultism as attempts by esotericists to come to terms with a secularized and disenchanted world. So it's sort of esotericism in the meeting with social Darwinism, modern science, um, increased religious pluralism, partly as a result of the loss of hegemony on the, the part of the major churches. So Esotericism in the modern world, sort of often characterized also by attempts to bring in science-like language and science-like methodologies to the study of supernatural realities, you could say. Okay. Very eloquently mm -hmm. put as well. <laughs> so when did this start becoming um, more popular in the UK or the US more mm. generally? There have been various waves of it, but definitely a lot happens from the uh, the mid-19th century onwards, we often talk about something called an occult revival. Now, that term is a little bit problematic because that sort of implies that occultism or esotericism was somehow not really around before that, which it definitely was. But certainly in the second half of the 19th century, there was a very strong wave of interest in various forms of religiosity and spiritual systems of meaning outside of the major religious institutions. So that's when we have phenomena such as spiritualism gaining loads and loads of interest during this time and becoming a very popularized sort of of esoteric or occult movement. We also have the um, the interest in practical magic pioneered by movements such as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And we also, of course, have um, the genre of literature on sexual magic as well. These various occultists 
writing about how they believed that that sexual energy or sexual fluids, sexual techniques could be harbored, um, harnessed for, for magical purposes. So one of the most popular, not well, popular is definitely not the way to put it, <laughs> one of the most well-known figures within that field was Alistair Crowley. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, definitely. So Alistair Crowley is fundamentally one of the most influential occultists of the uh, of the modern period basically he was born in 1875 his parents were members of a uh, conservative christian movement a dispensationalist movement known as the plymouth brethren and crowley rebelled against his upbringing at quite a young age he identified himself very famously as the great beast 666 which is of course a character from the book of revelation and he also brought in from the book of Revelation, the Whore of Babylon, which he reinterpreted as the goddess Babylon, representing, among other things, liberated sexuality. So he was really sort of invested in this kind of renegotiation of, of symbols that within a Christian context were, were seen as, as evil or sinister, basically. And this was based on a very sort of strong critique on Crowley's part of what he perceived as Victorian, Edwardian and Christian Christian sexual morals. That was one of his strong, strong sort of um, something that he really focused on quite a lot was revising Western sexual morals, essentially. So Crowley was drawn into this whole occult trend that was ongoing in England at this time. He, he joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in 1898. He left it a few years after that. In 1904, what happened was Crowley was on honeymoon with his first wife, Rose Kelly, in Cairo in Egypt. And he was visited by what Crowley describes as a discarnate entity, which he calls Iwas, who dictated to him what would become a, a sacred text, and which was later known as the Book of the Law, or Libra Religis, which proclaims a new aeon in the spiritual history of humanity, with Crowley as its main um, prophet and, and leader, essentially. And the Book of the Law proclaims the very famous maxim, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law, and also the word thelema, which is Greek for will. So there's this idea of, of will as a very important characteristic of this new aeon, which Crowley he would later develop into an idea, uh, not so much of doing whatever you want to do in any given moment, but instead something which he called the concept of the true will, which is the in a hidden unique purpose in each individual life which it is up to each individual man or woman to to find and sort of develop so that was really his, his main idea and what what is also the core idea of the religion that Crowley founded which is known as the Lima. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so I understand that a lot of your interests lie in gender aspects mm -hmm. as well yeah. so could you say a bit about how Crowley kind of explored that and played with it and kind of upended it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's a that's a really interesting question and one that I have looked into a lot. And it's it's very complex. Crowley is often accused of sexism and misogyny, and he does write some things in, in some texts that are uh, quite clearly in that direction from a contemporary perspective. On the other hand, he was also progressive in, in some texts. So he's quite, he often contradicts himself, for instance, in, in women's roles. In some texts he writes that uh, women are spiritually sort of different from men and have different uh, possibilities for developing and are generally sort of spiritually and morally inferior to men and in other texts he writes more or less the complete opposite one of his uh, texts from the 1920s for instance one of the comments to the book of the law is very 
progressive actually, even sort of from a contemporary perspective. He talks about women's sexual freedom, for instance, and writes that the best women uh, have always been sexually free and that this is something that's really important. And that was actually quite radical from the point of view of Crowley's time. So there's these, uh, these massive internal contradictions that you could say as well. Uh, also, the sort of core cosmology or theology of Crowley's religion of Thelema is very strongly gendered, and it's got all of these sort of gendered symbols that on some levels kind of contradict each other as well. For instance, within the Book of the Law, there's a tripartite cosmology based on uh, the goddess Nuit, the god Hadit, and their divine offspring, Rahor Kuit. So there you have the idea of a polarity between masculine and feminine that's interacting with the masculine playing a more active role and the feminine playing a more passive or receptive role. Then on the other hand, you have other deities within the system of Thelema as well. For instance, um, I was talking earlier about the, the symbolism of the beast 666 and the goddess Babylon. Now, the goddess Babylon is seen as one of the most important uh, embodiments of divine femininity within Thelema. And that's a symbol that is both active and receptive in, on different levels, you could say. So there's quite a lot of complexity in that. Mm. Mm. So taking it up to the present day, mm -hmm. um, could you describe kind of who might be involved with contemporary Thelema and mm -hmm. how prevalent it is or where it is as well? Yeah, yeah. There really is a lack of solid quantitative research on contemporary esotericism overall. So these figures that I'm going to be giving you are a little bit ballpark. The largest Thelemic organization in existence today is an organization known as the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, which Crowley led for several years during his lifetime, and which has approximately 4,000 members across the globe. About a quarter, slightly more than a quarter of that are in the US, but there are also a couple of hundred members in, uh, in, in other countries as well, such as the UK, Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, large portions of, of both Western and Eastern, Eastern Europe, some scattered local bodies in, in Asia and uh, in Latin America as well. People who tend to be involved are not very different from how people are in general. Um, the research that has been done and, and the observations that I've done over the course of my research say that people within the Thelemic milieu today are generally a little bit more highly educated than the average population, uh, maybe slightly more men than women, although that's difficult to estimate without doing more research in this area. Um, average age somewhere from around maybe 25 up until 50, but you've got all different kinds of ages. Um, and a, a really big diversity of different religious backgrounds. So people coming from a, uh, an atheist or agnostic background, a Christian background, a Jewish background, a Muslim background, um, quite a few who come into Thelema from Buddhism, for example, or find ways of, of combining the two. So really lots of different types of people and professionally speaking, many areas as well. Many people who are involved in, in the arts in different ways or in um, mental health, psychology, things like that, but also academics, um, IT professionals, uh, teachers, educators, so lots of different types of people. 
Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. So you mentioned that there's a f- uh, perhaps a few more men in Thelema, mm-hmm. um, whereas in groups that might be comparable, like Wicca or other, mm-hmm. other forms of paganism, it tends to uh, be much more strongly female. Yeah. So do you, do you have any opinions on why that might be? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. With, uh, with groups such as Wicca, what is important to remember is that when Wicca emerged, uh, the gender balance that we're seeing today with, with uh, a lot of women wasn't really, um, that was that was different because when, when Wicca emerged, it came out of the ceremonial magical orders of the early 20th century, which were male dominated to some extent. So what has happened in, in Wicca and neo-paganism is this very strong integration with feminism, with second wave feminism and radical feminism that we're seeing in the 1970s. That intersection hasn't been quite as strong, I think, within Thelema, although we definitely see influence of it there as well. Thelema and organizations such as the OTO have stayed a little closer to this sort of ceremonial magical background that they're coming out of for different reasons. Um, And there's a lot of different reasons why that development hasn't really uh, happened in the same way there. But but yeah, that's uh, that's a very fascinating uh, disparity, I think, as well. Mm. So in uh, contemporary Thelema, mm-hmm. uh, to what extent do they base their practices on uh, Crowley's writings? And to mm. what extent do they try and be a bit more creative or reinterpret things? Mm. And um, I mean, as he was obviously a very kind of creative thinker, do they try and emulate that attitude as well? Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, both of those things, definitely. Crowley is a, a huge source of authority for contemporary Thelemites who many of whom practice daily some of the the rituals and and spiritual practices that he advocated. For instance, Crowley advocated daily meditation or the use of a magical journal. That is something that that many, many Thelemites do on a daily basis. He also advocated the use of of simple banishing rituals, such as the lesser ritual of the pentagram or the star ruby, which is a sort of Thelemic banishing ritual that Crowley devised himself, himself. And those are very popular as well. And... Also, a lot of Thelemites today participate in group rituals that Crowley wrote. One that is immensely important for a lot of people is a ritual called the Gnostic Mass, which Crowley wrote in 1913, which is celebrated on a weekly basis somewhere across the globe uh, within the contemporary OTO, which has a lot of significance for many Thelemites today. But of course, people are also immensely creative and also bring in practices and symbols and patterns of belief from other religious traditions as well. Like I mentioned, uh, quite a few Thelemites are inspired by Buddhism, for example, and perhaps especially Tantric Buddhism and bring in symbolism and and practices for that uh, to different extents. 
Another thing that's been developing in recent years is an interest in African diaspora religions. So that's particularly something that you can see in the US with an increasing number of of American occultists and American Thelemites bringing in practices and deities from things like voodoo, santeria, kimbanda, palamayombe, and, and things like that. So that's a very interesting syncretism. So, so people are, of course, immensely uh, creative as well. And that's something that's sort of there in this religious system. Originally, Crowley was very sort of um, firm on the idea that you should do what works for you and you should be meticulous about documenting your magical practices and you should practice what works instead of blindly following some sort of uh, belief-centric system, essentially. Mm. Mm. And how about the uh, gender politics mm-hmm. in contemporary Thelema as well? Mm-hmm. Um, how much are they kind of aiming to replicate the original to what extent have they mm-hmm. been changing as well? There has been a, a quite active debate that's been ongoing at least since the mid-1990s with people and and um, especially women, I think, who have addressed things like uh, perceived sexism and misogyny in Crowley's writings and also the gender disparity that we were talking about earlier and why aren't there more women in Thelema and what can we do to sort of ameliorate that uh, imbalance to the extent that there is an imbalance. And one thing that's, of course, new is that today there's a whole different language for talking about different varieties of, of gendered experience and different forms of sexual orientations and practices as well than there was during Crowley's time. For instance, I mean, Crowley himself was a very sort of interesting figure when it comes to gender. For instance, he, I mean, he, he um, in some texts, he suggests that he is sort of hermaphroditic or androgynous on a sort of spiritual level. And in his diaries and his, his autobiography, he writes about this as well. And he writes that he is combined masculine and feminine virtues within himself and that that is also reflected in his physique so today we uh have labels such as uh, such as gender fluidity gender queerness non-binarity and things like that that weren't really present in crowley's day and that is something that's very visible in this debate today as well and how that's sort of used for instance in in the oto the order templi orientis there is a system of, of refer, referring to members as brother or sister. And there's also been introduced a gender neutral variety of that. So siblings, so non, non-binary or gender queer members of the OTO can choose to be referred to as sibling, for instance. And that's a very clear example of how that, um, how that is actualized in the contemporary debate. Another example of that is with the Gnostic mass, which uh, in its original policy stipulates that the well, the mass is performed by a priest and a priestess, among other officers. And originally, the, the policy for the United States Grand Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis states that the priestess should be a woman and the priest should be a man in Gnostic mass celebrations that are open to the general public, which many of them are. Uh, today, that policy has been, or this happened quite a few years ago, but that policy has been uh, amended to say that uh, the person performing the role of priest that should be someone who identifies as female and the person performing the role of priest should identify as male. So that, of course, includes that transgender women can perform the role as priestess and transgender men can perform the role as priests, regardless of where one is in the process of one's transition. That's also a very strong example of that, I think. When it comes to um, people trying to maybe... Uh, legitimate their arguments or finding sources of authority for mm-hmm. kind of changing the let's say traditional structures of it mm-hmm. um what kind of 
like narratives might they come up with? Mm. Well, something that is really strong is sort of appealing to Crowley's own queerness, if you want to call it that. That is something that a lot of people who are sort of arguing for revising these policies and for bringing in what you could call a more sort of inclusive way of looking at gender, they say, well, look at Crowley and look at who he was for his time. He was he was openly bisexual. He had a female alter ego that he called Alice, whom he... Uh, sometimes uh, took on the role of in, in rituals and in very social situations. So people point to that. There's also quite a lot in original Philemic doctrine that suggests that um, gender isn't really, uh, doesn't really determine anyone's value, that every man and every woman is a star. For instance, that's a passage from the Book of the Law, and that's something that a lot of people quote as well. However, there's also quite a strong critique of Crowley in contemporary Thelemic debate. So a lot of people are also aware that some of the things that he wrote are problematic from a contemporary perspective and sort of say, well, Crowley says this, but we don't necessarily have to take everything Crowley says at face value. We can also acknowledge that he was a man of his time and that we've maybe come further in some of these issues today. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how about the uh, historical roles of women in Thelema? Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, definitely. That is something that I'm actually starting uh, my, my current research project that's just starting now. It's a, it's a three-year postdoctoral research project founded by the Swedish Research Council that will be exploring that specific issue. I'm going to be looking at the lives of three women in 20th century Thelema and uh, their different roles in building this emerging religion. So something that was really fundamental to the uh, many of the occult orders that emerged during the early 20th century is that women were able to take on leadership roles in a way that they weren't in the major religious institutions during this time and ascend to positions of really quite uh, significant religious and spiritual authority. And that was also, that was the case in the Golden Dawn, for instance, which Crowley was briefly a member of, and it was also the case in the early Thelemic movement. Several of Crowley's female disciples and and lovers held really important positions within the Thelemic movement. So one of them that uh, springs to mind immediately and is also one of the women that I'm going to be looking into in my postdoctoral research is a woman named Leah Hersig, who was a Swiss-American school teacher and who co-founded with Crowley, the Abbey of Thelema at Cefalu in Sicily in 1920. And she was basically his right hand for a few years. He dictated important texts to her and she wrote and in all likelihood commented and edited and contributed to that as well. And she was also really instrumental in sort of steering the Thelemic community, which was scattered across the globe around this time. She was also Crowley's Scarlet Woman, which was a title that he assigned to some of his most important female disciples and lovers. So to that extent, she was seen as the sort of semi-deified counterpart of him as the Beast 666. And she also, at the Abbey of Thelema, took on a very, very important ritual role as the Scarlet Woman. She eventually claimed herself to be the goddess Babylon incarnate, and she also presided over Crowley's initiation to the the, uh, highest uh, degree in his magical system, which is called the Ipsissimus degree. So she played a really important role in that. Another woman who was very important, whose life I'll also be looking into, is named Jane Wolfe, who was an American silent film actress who was also with Crowley at the Abbey of Thelema and uh, studied under his tutelage and then went back to America and was really fundamental in establishing the uh, Thelemic milieu in the US. And something which is often overlooked about these women is how really important they were and how fundamental they were. For instance, right now there's uh, this TV series that's being, I can't remember what uh, 
station it is or what channel, but on the life of Jack Parsons, who was one of Crowley's more colorful American disciples in the US. And, and Parsons gets a lot of publicity for various reasons. He led a very interesting life. But someone like Jane Wolfe, who was very sort of organizationally important and over a much longer period than, than someone like Parsons, for instance, gets a lot less press and a lot less sort of attention because she mm. played a quieter role, but she was really formative. And that's a lot of the time what happens with women in religious communities. They don't get sort of the spotlight, but they're there managing everything and making sure that the day-to-day -day operations actually works. That is something that I think is uh, sadly quite often overlooked. Mm. Mm. Do you think that attitudes towards women in Philema have generally reflected wider society's attitudes. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, to an extent, of course. In society at large, of course, there is uh, there are issues with women as, as leaders in a lot of different fields where women aren't really allowed or not accepted as leaders to the same extent as men, or women who take on leadership roles are also often perceived in a more negative light than men. And I think those issues are reflected in the Thelemic community as well, to some extent, or at least they, they have been, definitely, historically. Mm. And also this sort of uh, expectation that women are supposed to take on more emotional labor and more sort of chores like preparing and cooking and cleaning and doing those types of things while the men get to sit around and have the interesting uh, <laughs> conversations. I mean, that's, uh, that's a little bit of a stereotype, but sometimes you see that happening definitely in occult history as well. Mm. Okay, mm -hmm. so changing tack slightly. Mm -hmm. When it comes to occultism and esotericism, they're kind of famously secretive. Mm -hmm. um, so how did that affect your research and the, the methods that you used to, to research mm -hmm. this? Yeah, that's a good question. And it is, of course, a challenge studying these movements. Some of the rituals, for instance, that are performed by the OTO today, such as the initiation rituals, those are secret and they're not open to initiates. I handled that by not writing about those parts of the uh, the tradition whatsoever. Some researchers within this field have dealt with that by conducting sort of open participant observation, seeking initiation in occult orders and then describing the rituals. And I chose not to do that because I felt it would be ethically quite mm. troublesome. And also it wasn't really the, uh, the aspects of the traditions that I was interested in uh, for the particular research that I did for my PhD anyway. But it is something that you definitely come across uh, to a certain extent and there's always uh, a lot of sort of sensitivity that's required of the researcher I think in sort of determining what you're actually being uh, invited into as a scholar and what you're being invited into as a friend or sort of a someone who's perceived as a kindred spirit and that's something I've had to deal with a lot with uh, conversations of a more delicate nature during uh, during my field work and there are when I've published from my research, there are things that are being left out, of course, for that reason. But that's uh, that's the case with anyone who does any type of ethnographic research, I think. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, Manan, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoy the rest of your conference. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining the RSP. You're welcome. Wonderful to have had that interview. Um, I believe that is the, the last of Sammy's from... The BA, uh, sorry, the EASR. That was six months ago, dude. I know. Um, and we're still, you know, we've got so many podcasts lined up. It's fantastic. We've already started planning for the next EASR. Yeah. Well, that's a point. Um, I've got a note in my calendar to, to follow up on that. Um, you should all uh, know, everyone, that, yeah, the EASR, they've got a, a call out for their conference that's closing fairly soon. And there's some bursaries available. So do, um, do get applying if you think that cost... It's too much to keep you from Estonia, Tartu. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a really good 
conference and I'm not going to get another chance to go to Estonia, so I'm going to go. Excellent. So there's another reason for listeners to go to the ASR. <laughs> there's a reason for yeah. them to not go, perhaps. I saw the conference. Um, so another interview that was recorded um, in our fantastic podcast studio in Bern at the ASR last year is next week's podcast uh, with uh, Tom White. And I'm going to start uh, speaking with um, Philip Hetmanchik and Martin Bergen about the Thurwell affair. So that was um, where a, a couple of um, Muslim male uh, school children um, didn't shake their female um, school teacher's hand and it sparked a whole massive controversy. So they're, they're zoning in on that, but then you know all of the sort of discourses surrounding... Um, the place of the religious and the secular in and and again 2018's our schools year really on the podcast i think these issues where they trouble ideas about you know religion the secular its relationship to law and education as well i mean i know this is in a school but it's actually more about what rights you know whether religion is a special case in public spaces and things like that. So it's it's broader. It goes into issues of the law and things like exactly. that. Exactly, uh, very and, interesting. And things like a handshake. You know, people don't think about that as being something religion related in any sense. It's a it's traditional. Why wouldn't they just do it? Why wouldn't they just participate? Um, and and actually, that way that people can react to traditional norms um, not being followed. Uh, it really ties in to this whole power dynamic. Well, of course, religion. but both sets of behaviour are traditional cultural norms. Exactly. But it's when we work in a system in which something which can be labelled as religion gets extra weight that we start that we run into into problems. So you know, as Russell McCutcheon always says, classification matters. Classification does matter. So come back next week for that, and um, yeah, just keep checking out. The, uh, the website and the social media feeds and um, we hope that your uh, festive winding upness is, is happening and everything's looking good for you. Indeed. Don't forget to use our Amazon affiliate links amazon.co.uk.ca and .com For all that, that festive shopping. Yeah, when you're getting your Christmas shopping at the last minute in a mad rush, use our affiliate links. You can find them on the website um, and that just means we get a little cut Instead of going to Amazon, some of it goes to supporting your favourite educational podcast. And what better Christmas present can there be than that? I don't know. Thanks Thanks for for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.